If God is good, which He is, and we are made in His image, which we are, then the only appropriate response to the goodness of God should be to imitate His goodness during our time on earth. That is, our lives should be a constant reflecting and outpouring of the goodness that we have seen in the Lord. Last week, we looked at five indicators of whether or not your life is living that kind of God-reflecting goodness. And they are, goodness announces the hope of forgiveness. Goodness promotes an affection for God. Goodness helps supply basic needs. Goodness seeks to free the oppressed. Goodness points to the God of goodness. And today we'll look at number six, goodness thrives in the atmosphere of gratitude. James chapter 1 verse 17 says, every good Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights. So if every good thing that happens in your life is from God, then the only response should be to thank God. Exactly as the psalmist says, 92.1, it is good. It is good to praise the Lord, proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. For you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. When I was growing up, people, I got introduced to this phrase that said, we should praise God for who he is and not for what he's done. And as a teenager, I was totally confused. When I heard it again in college, I was totally confused. And I'm still totally confused because I think it completely goes against everything that's taught in Scripture. We praise the Lord, yes, that He's beautiful, yes, that He is, but we praise the Lord for the deeds that He does for us, what He gives to us, and how He serves us. Believers have every reason, because of how God serves them, to live a life of exceeding gratitude. In Luke 17, we read, Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. As he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Now, these men were outcast. I don't care how much PPE that would have been available in that day, there is, you could have adorned a doctor with any amount of medical protective equipment, and he or she would not have touched those men. They were confined to isolation in leper colonies outside the city, and there they died with the extremities of their body rotting and falling off. Nobody touched lepers. They had no hope on this occasion except meeting Jesus Christ who healed them all. One of them, after the healing, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice, and he threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Don't you love the way Jesus said, this puzzles me. Didn't Didn't I heal ten? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise again. Your faith has made you well. Ten were healed, but only one was saved. 
Only one went from physical healing to spiritual healing. As believers in Jesus Christ, because he's touched us with restoring love, God has given us every reason to overflow with exceeding gratitude. I was reading the book of Romans recently in my quiet time and came to the the horrible ending of the book, which sort of lists what we call the class A sins of society. Romans 1, women were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men. God gave them over to a depraved mind. They're full of envy and murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They invent ways of doing evil, and they have no love and no mercy. And no doubt that is a dark list of behaviors to read, but you always got to remember the only reason Romans 1 ends up like that is because of what happened earlier in Romans 1, people living without gratitude. Romans 1.21, they, they neither glorified God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darking, darkened. Refusing to acknowledge God's goodness is not only ungrateful, but it's harmful. It leads a life to a spiral morally downward to live without gratitude. You know, there's an interesting, increasing spirit of ingratitude growing in our nation. And the result of the ingratitude is an increase of strife and a decrease of joy. The heart was designed by God to live in gratitude. The heart was designed by God that as it expresses gratitude, it increases in joy. That's why the psalmist says, I sing, I experience joy when I look at what your hands have done. Or as Chris Tomlin said in a song a few years ago, I sing for joy at the work of your hands. Gratitude increases personal joy and gratitude increases national joy. One of the questions of our day that I am frequently asked is, should a Christian whose citizenship is in heaven, should that Christian show patriotism for the country where they live? Been asked that question more than you can imagine. And I argue, yes, because showing gratitude for being able to work and play and live in a country that is drenched with providential blessings from above increases personal and national joy. If the motive behind the patriotic event is the expression of gratitude for providential blessings, the result in the event will be an increase of personal and national joy. Every time we say thank you for God-given pleasures, our hearts experience new pleasure. It's a win-win situation. But the more that we move away from gratitude, the more that we lose personal joy and the more that we lose national joy. Several years ago, I spent a week with a group of believers in Austria. 
They were nationals who lived there. They worked for Campus Crusade for Christ among, among the college students there. But the whole time that I was in Salzburg, they were infatuated with gratitude for the country of Austria. They said, look at our mountains, look at our rivers, look at our architecture, look at our beauty. And at the same time, they were giving their lives for serving the Lord among Austrian students. So when those students died, they would be ready to meet God in heaven. These Austrians understood that they lived in two countries at the same time. One foot was in Austria, the other foot was in heaven Expressing gratitude for present blessings and preparing lives for eternal blessings. God, I'm telling you, this discussion about is national gratitude important? It is important because it's a spiritual issue. The Bible says in Acts chapter 17, from one man, God made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from anyone God has created, God has created all the cultures of the world. God has created all the nations of the world. And whenever someone in a nation experiences a blessing from the God while in that nation to that nation, it is fitting and right and helpful to say, thank you to God for the blessing I have experienced. To be grateful for the blessings of God where you live does not mean that you're denying the gospel. Nor does it mean that you have failed to live and put your hope in heaven. It simply means that while you walk with Jesus Christ on earth, you thank him for the blessings that have come into your life along the way. And should those blessings not exist, I trust that you would be ever comforted in the eternal love of God that will never cease to be your guide. But for every good gift that you experience now, it is good personally for your joy and nationally for your joy to say thank you to God. Number seven, goodness unites justice and godliness. Micah chapter six, verse eight. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God? So in verse 8, Micah says, I'm going to show you how to live a good life. And so then in the first half of verse 8, he says, living a good life means live a life of justice, which means delighting and showing mercy to the oppressed. So are you living a good life? I delight in showing mercy to the oppressed. 
Then he adds a second ingredient of what it means to live a good life. And that means to walk humbly with your God. The word humbly means to live in careful observance of his laws. The justice that honors God promotes a morality that honors God. You see this also in the most famous justice statement in the Old Testament. Amos 5.24, let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never failing stream. Again, you see the two ingredients in a, in a life that God says is good. A life that's dedicated to justice, that is the lifting of burdens, and a life that's dedicated to morality, righteousness. So once again, let's say, what is a good life? The justice that honors God promotes a morality that honors God. I think if, if the prophets long ago would have been into hashtags, they would have probably, for the purpose of justice, would have said, hashtag Amos 5.24. That is a true definition of justice. I think everyone in this room today not only desires freedom for yourself, but I think you would say you desire freedom for every single person in the world. Can't imagine somebody would say, I don't want freedom. Several years ago, Oz Guinness wrote a book. The title of it was A Free People's Suicide. And he explains why this country in which you live by God's Acts 17, 26 providence, why this country so far has worked. That is, why has freedom come to this nation? And he explains it through what he calls the golden triangle of freedom. So at the top, he says, if any society wants freedom, that society must be a society of virtue. Now, I know that virtue is not a word we use, so I will, I'll just exchange Oz Guinness's word for goodness. So if a society wants to be free, remain free, then that society must be a society that is pursuing goodness. When he says goodness, he means that we live for the good of others more than we live for the good of ourselves. That's what he means by goodness. He means we're loving, we're, we're self-controlled, we show self-restraint so that we, while we're pursuing goodness, we're also pursuing goodness of others. So freedom is based on the pursuit of goodness for others as much as the goodness for yourself. But then you say, how in the world is it possible that people that are fallen and have sinful hearts, how is it that we would ever pursue goodness? And so then he says, that society, in order to be a good society, must have faith. That is the only way that goodness, love, self-restraint comes when that society looks to their creator and said, you are the ultimate authority in my life. So it's a triangle. Freedom requires goodness. Goodness requires faith. And faith can only exist in a society that is free. It's called the golden triangle of freedom. And the reason that I mention that is that a society 
that does not honor God will never have the motivation to show mercy to others. That's what Amos was trying to say. Like justice, let justice roll on like a river as you're pursuing righteousness before the Lord. Same principle you see in the New Testament book of James. Religion that God our Father accepts, good religion, religion that God accepts as pure and faultless is this. Then he defines it in the two ways that are always stated together in the Bible. Mercy and justice. I mean, mercy and righteousness. To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. I can't stress this enough that the morality that honors God, the morality that pleases God, contains mercy and godliness. You know, one of the reasons that we enjoy the privilege of serving in India is because every time we plant a church there, you pretty much know that church is going to be involved in the care of orphans. It's like if you're a pastor in India, you better get used to the fact of you're going to care for orphans and widows. In fact, what I love about many of our church plants in, in Bangalore is the church building is often used as a home for orphans and widows, exactly as James says. But God says here, if the churches in India were caring for orphans and widows, but were living immoral lives, he would be displeased with the work of orphans and widows in India. True goodness always unites mercy and morality. The blessing of God never rests on any organization that is about justice, not morality. Because if we love the oppressed while hating morality, it means that we love people more than we love God. Now, that's idolatry. And idolatry always leads to the rise of darkness and chaos. The one person who got this right all the time in life was our Lord Jesus Christ. Again, look at his love for justice and morality at the same time. Perfectly. Hebrews 2.17, Jesus is a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Let's just stop there a minute. So here you have Jesus Christ, merciful, perfectly loving man, lifting burdens, perfectly loving God, living in obedience. It's the only justice that God likes, only that he approves of. While you're loving people, you are also loving God. Can I get a more beautiful combination and then the Christ? Now, he's called here in verse 17 a faithful high priest. And you know that every priest that pleased God had to bring a gift to the Lord. And here the Bible says that Jesus Christ, the gift he brought, was the suffering of himself. So let me just say this. If you're looking for the ultimate symbol of justice in this world, 
ultimate symbol of goodness in this world. Just look at the cross. For it was there in the first century that God so loved the world that he sent his son to die for every moment in our life when we neither loved justice nor loved morality. When Jesus was crucified on a hillside outside Jerusalem, God did not direct his wrath onto the people there. He directed his wrath onto his son. Jesus, surrounded by criminals, suspended between heaven and earth, arms stretched out wide, uniting right and left, east and west, Jesus Christ was treated more unjustly than any man who's ever lived. The perfect Son of God absorbed the guilt of our imperfections into His body that His fullness of purity might be placed in our body. The greatest event in the history of the world is when Jesus Christ imputed His righteousness into our unrighteous bodies. In order to do that, back to virtue, Jesus Christ had to exhibit the ultimate example of self-control. He took no one's life, destroyed no one's property. Instead, he laid down his life and gave away his property, including the very clothing that he wore. May we imitate the merciful and righteous Son of God as we lay down our lives so that many will be reconciled to God. Finally, goodness perseveres because it waits on God. What does it mean to live a good life? It means you wait and wait and wait. Galatians 6, 9, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, because the harvest is coming, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people. So no matter how weary we become, when we do God's work for God's glory, we will fulfill God's will and God's time. This is called the law of the harvest. You see, summarize the law of the harvest in one sentence. This would be the law of the harvest. Never stop planting seeds. Never stop doing good. If you were a farmer that had a bad year of crops, let's say insects got into the crops or there was just insufficient rain, so it was a bad crop. If, if you saw that farmer, would you give him, with the advice that you give him, don't farm anymore. Nope. You would tell him, bad year, next year, plant again. Because that's what he is. He's a farmer. So the law of the harvest is never stop planting seeds. Never stop doing good. Preach the word. Look at this. In season and out of season. When crops grow when crops don't grow, when people respond, when people hate you, when sermons are popular, when they're unpopular, preach the word. Plant seeds never stop 
doing good. Why? Because there will eventually be a harvest. What we're doing today is the way that God saves people. He may not save anybody today. He might not save anybody next week, next month. But if you keep singing, you keep praying, you keep coming, you keep giving, and I keep preaching, somebody in this place, on college campuses, in the inner city, on fields around the world, in villages, in the inner city, in prisons, in government, in education, somebody will get saved. Never, ever stop planting seeds. Or you can't reap anything. If you read the book of Galatians, you can see that these people were in danger of giving up on the gospel. Because now it was becoming hard. When, they, when, when, when the gospel was first preached in this region, all, sometimes almost entire cities were responding to Christ. But you know what happens when the church begins to increase, so does opposition increase. So now persecution rose. Apathy rose. Comfort decreased. And so the people were in danger in the book of Galatians of seeking to leave so that they might experience more comfort and less rejection. It was easier if they left the gospel. But the problem is by leaving the gospel, guess who you leave? You leave the Holy Spirit who's the only person who will ever give you a passion for the work. You leave the gospel, you leave Christ, you leave his spirit, you leave passion. And all of a sudden, then the work becomes a chore. Like a child who gets tired of his toys at Christmas. <laughs> we get tired of serving Christ. When we depart from Christ, the thrill of leading a small group is now a chore. The thrill of greeting visitors is now a chore. The thrill of holding babies and teaching children is now a chore. The thrill of teaching English to internationals is now a chore. The thrill of volunteering in the inner city is now a chore. The thrill of giving money to the advance of Christ among the gospel deprived is now a chore. And God says, let us not become weary in doing good. You will reap a harvest if you do not give up. In 1952... A young woman by the name of Florence Chadwick stepped into the waters off of the coast of California. She was going to swim the coast of the mainland. She was already a record holder. She was the first woman to ever swim the English Channel both ways. On that day in 1952, the weather was foggy and chilly. She set out, and for 15 hours, she swam. But shortly after the 15-hour mark, she begged those in the kayaks beside her, the boats beside her, to be taken out of the water. They told her, you're not far away from finishing. But she continued to beg, take me out. Physically and emotionally exhausted, she got in a boat. The boats made for the shore, and then she discovered she was less than a half mile away from finishing, but couldn't see it because of the fog. The next day, she gave a news conference. 
And this is what she said. I do not want to make excuses for myself. I am the one who asked to be pulled out. But I think that if I could have seen the shore, I would have made it. This is the reason for church. It's the reason for your daily Bible reading. It's the reason for Christian fellowship. Is that we encourage each other that the shore is not that far away. That we look at other believers who've gone on before us and have gone through difficult times and we saw that they made it and we say, by God's grace, I can make it too. The shore is not that far away. But for his glory and by his spirit, in season and out of season, the law of the harvest is keep planting seeds, keep doing good, keep telling truth, for if we do, we will reap a harvest if we don't give up before we get to the shore. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for all the benefits of your kindness that are surrounding us right now. The car we drove in, the meal that we're about to eat, the fall atmosphere on our skin, legs that are wondrously connected to nerves that are propelled to move by commands from our brain and energy from blood through the heart. Lord, we thank you for the benefits of kindness that you have ordained at this time in history that we would have freedom of religion. That no one died today in the city because of persecution coming to this house. Lord, we do hope that we would say yes to you anyway. That we would express our gratitude to you anyway. If the benefits of this nation and the benefits of freedom were not ours. But they are ours right now and so we say thank you. For all of the things that surround us, Lord, our glimpses into the generosity of your heart, and we say thank you. Father, when we think about your generous hands, we always, Lord, think about how generous they were to be nailed to a cross so that our sins, our failure to live just lives, our failure to live moral lives, the guilt of all of that could be poured out on your son and we could be forgiven. So we come to Christ right now. We look to him and we say, Lord, we, we confess the, the failure to love from our hearts, the failure to love people. We confess today, Lord, the failure to love you in our hearts. We confess that. And we receive from you a risen Christ. Your imputed righteousness. A coat. Perfectly pure. Wrapped around our bodies. So that we would be holy as the Son of God is holy. 
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. The only response to you today that's appropriate is thank you. Would you, God, bring someone today to say thank you for being my Savior and my provider? In Christ's name I pray. Amen.